Welcome to the final panel of our conference on natural law and natural rights. Uh, I'm very pleased to moderate this panel. Uh, its title is Incommensurable Options, Self-Reference, and Free Choice. Uh, of course, the contemporary jurisprudence was part of what the conference was about, and I think uh, there's little sense in talking about the law unless one can establish that there is indeed such a thing as free choice, and uh, that is in fact what uh, Professor Joseph Boyle has set out to argue in his paper. Uh, Professor uh, Boyle is Professor of Philosophy at St. Michael's College in the University of Toronto, and he's visiting Professor of Moral Philosophy in the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and the Family. He received his PhD from Georgetown University in 1970 and did postdoctoral work at Brown in 1975 and 76. Professor Boyle has been active in both American and Canadian philosophical associations and a member of a number of editorial boards. He is senior scholar of the Canadian Catholic Bioethics Institute. His respondents are Jorge Garcia and Michael Bauer. Professor Garcia is professor of philosophy at Boston College. He received his BA from Fordham and his PhD from Yale University in 1980 and has taught at the University of Notre Dame, Georgetown University, and Rutgers University. His book, The Heart of Racism, Essays on Diversity, Race, and Relativism, which, uh, among other things, uh, addresses uh, virtues as the basis of moral theory, will be published this year by Rauman and Littlefield. Michael Bauer is professor of philosophy and director of the Natural Law Colloquium at Fordham University. He served as the National Secretary of the Hegel Society of America since 1994 and of the American Catholic Philosophical Association since 1997. Professor Bauer holds a JD from Harvard and an MA and a PhD from the University of Toronto. Uh, please uh, welcome Professor Boyle. I'm honored to be a presenter in this distinguished conference. I thank Professor George and, uh, for, for inviting me and for the hospitality of the, the members of uh, the, the Madison Institute. I'm really delighted to have this chance to pay tribute to the enduring achievement of John Finnis's book, Natural Law and Natural Rights. From the perspective of a collaborator in the project, the internal perspective uh, of a collaborator in the, in the project with uh, John Finnis and Germaine Griset and others, of renewing natural law morality, the appearance of natural law and natural rights is a very significant event for us. By working through the issues of jurisprudence from the perspective of our developing ideas about the foundations of ethics, John Finnis demonstrated that, that 
uh, our approach to ethical theory was uh, a horse that could run, maybe not win, but run. And moreover, John did this with a style and in a forum that, that provoked widespread academic interest in our approach. And in particular, he provoked with this book the criticisms which have been so vital in the development of the so-called new natural law theory. My paper today is an effort to bring together two sides, two, two ideas that are uh, embedded in our general approach. Uh, the first of these is, is the argument that affirming that no one can make a free choice is self-refuting. Uh, that's an argument that was first developed in the 1970s by Germaine Grise, Olaf Tolleson, and myself and has been uh, a uh, standard part of our story about morality ever since. Uh, I want to put that together with uh, the developing sense, uh, uh, as our theory unfolds, that free choice responds to options that are incommensurable in desirability. I have a handout, and I hope the handout will uh, facilitate, facilitate our communication. And I think it will certainly facilitate communication in at least this way, that it will make plain uh, what, what bits of my longer paper uh, I'm not going to be able to read because of time constraints. Am I being clear enough? Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, choice can be understood. I'm now in part one. Choice can be understood as a kind of selection, namely an agent selecting from among options in response to deliberation, deliberation being reflection on their merits. A person faces options for action when he or she is motivated towards several incompatible actions, and the motivation towards each is blocked from initiating action by the motivational motivations towards the others. Each has appeal or attraction sufficient to block the spontaneous action for the other. In this context, the selecting is the person's removal of the block to action and endorsing the motivation toward the option selected. The selecting, therefore, is a mental act, like being motivated and deliberating. What a person selects is a performance, for example, beginning to think about something or moving a limb. The performance selected is something one can do without doing something else. If one, if one selecting such a performance discovers that one can't do it, or can do it only by doing something else, then one selects another performance as a way of bringing about the previously desired performance or its goal. Thus, the performance selected, whether physical or mental, is what the agent immediately does in pursuit of whatever makes doing that desirable. For example, the, that the performance instantiates a good or contributes causally to creating, uh, to creating or maintaining a valued state of affairs. The performance one chooses is activated by the motives favoring the chosen option. By the selection of the chosen option, the, the, these motives become sufficient for activating the performance, given that what the choice does precisely is to remove the motivational block to action. So a choice, whether it's free or not, doesn't introduce a new motivational element, but instead allows one set of motivations to prevail. The kind of selection that is a choice removes the block to action in response to reflection upon the merits of the alternatives, that is, in response to deliberation. Such choices are free, as, as I'm going to use the term free, 
when all the causally relevant factors prior to the agent's own choosing do not settle the choice. In other words, only the agent's choosing one option settles which he or she will do. Consequently, the mental and causal factors relevant to a choice, such things as, as desires, reasons for action, and beliefs, these things are not sufficient to bring about a choice that is free. Likewise, non-mental causes, such as brain processes, will not be causally sufficient for a person's choosing one rather than the option of the other option, another option, if the choice is free. Not all selections are choices, uh, uh, as, as I've, as I've uh, used the word choice, and there's no reason to believe that selections that aren't choices are free in the sense I've just defined. One can select among competing desires without reflection, as when the desire to get into a more comfortable position tri triumphs over one's embarrassment of, of concerning moving about, without any explicit reflection on the merits of either behavior. And similarly, one might pick an item from a menu by ordering the first item that struck one's fancy, without any rational comparison of the merits of the items. Moreover, it seems possible that the hesitation between options upon which one is deliberating, it's possible that that could be settled not by a choice responsive to the outcome of the deliberation, but by some non-rational or subconscious mechanism. In such situations, there may be a selection, but there would not be a choice. The deliberation isn't connected to the selection. Furthermore, not all choices are free in the sense I, I have defined. Um, Selections response, responsive to deliberations are choices, even if they are not free choices, free as I've defined it. Choices that compatibilists in the Humean tradition would recognize as free are plainly not free in the sense I've specified. And it certainly appears that there are choices that are free only in the attenuated Humean sense of the word, namely choices that are spontaneous and uncoerced. Perhaps there are choices free in other ways that are not free in the sense I've, I've specified, for example, the view of free will as congruence between one's effective desires and one's higher order volitions bearing upon them. The picture of deliberation and choice that, that is favored by many compatibilists and other psychological determinists has application to human behavior in the following way, or at least is the way of constructing it. When there's a conflict among desires blocking action, one of them may emerge as motivationally more potent than the others and then, then prevail over them. This no doubt happens sometimes uh, in the resolution of motivational conflicts that cause animals to hesitate in their behavior. And it seems to happen sometimes in human behavior. In such cases, it's reasonable to believe that the outcome isn't free. Indeed, in these cases, the selection is often independent of any reflection and therefore is not a choice. This account of the resolution of motivational conflicts is reasonably extended to human choices. And, and here, here's one way it can go. Deliberation and choice arise when desires are rationalized into reasons for action, and the agent reflects on the merits of the options articulated in the reflective, in the reflective process. In such cases, it seems that the discovery of the best reason performs the function that the emergence of the most potent desire performs in animal behavior and in unreflective human motivation. It settles the issue. On this conception, the point of deliberation is to clarify which among the competing options really is the best. That is, which option 
has most fully or completely whatever it is that makes all the options uh, faced desirable. When that clarification is successfully completed, the blocked action, and, and you judge that one of them is best, the blocked action is removed because the merits of the best are seen to include whatever there is of desirability in the option judged to be less desirable. This version of psychological determinism certainly holds true whenever options are compared strictly in, ter in terms of whatever it is that makes them desirable, and one judges that one is strictly and definitively more desirable. For the idea of the good as the desirable grounds motivation. One responds motivationally to the judgment that something is good and will act for it if there are no obstacles. To judge practically that something is good is so far forth to want it, and to want it is to act for it if not impeded. In a context calling for choice, a motivational obstacle is present, but when one judges that one option is strictly more desirable, the ground for the obstacle falls away. The better option promises more of what one has reason to pursue. This assumes a univocal conception of what is best. An option will not be strictly better when the alternative has desirability features that are not better realized in the better option. Consequently, when one responds to the irreducible appeal of a feature of an ocratic option, an appeal that remains even after judging uh, that the continent option is all around the better choice, one has not ruled out the ocratic option as strictly and decisively worse. Still, it's clear that when the comparative judgment of desirability is strict and decisive, the response to that judgment is inevitably a choice of the greater good. For to judge that one option is strictly better than the other is to judge that it embodies desirability characteristics more fully than the other, that it promises more or better of what makes both options desirable. In the light of that judgment, any reason for choosing the lesser good is seen to become part of the better reason for choosing the better option. The strong and narrow idea of commensurability of, that I'm using here of the comparative goodness of the value of options, this suggests that cases in which psychological determinism undoubtedly applied, applies are limited and are perhaps rare. But the requirements for this kind of, income of commensurability are not impossibly high. The needed comparison doesn't require that one make close cardinal rankings of the goods involved or their instantiations in the options. What is required is simply that one be able to make judgments such, such as that some action to promote health is a less healthy action than some other, or that an act for the sake of friendship is more or less valuable than an action undertaken for the sake of, say, research. Successful comparisons of these kinds do not imply the existence of an articulated metric for all options or even for a given set of options. But the relevant comparison of options leading to the judgment that one is better does, does involve the ability to arrive at an ordinal ranking of the overall desirability of the options ranked. These, these conditions can be met, for example, when the desirability of a given person's options are compared in the light of a single definite goal or project, which alone is taken, at least for, for that given cho the choice at, at stake, as the basis of desirability. Winning a war might provide such a standard for a nation in some circumstances. 
and maintaining and furthering one's basic vocational commitments might well provide a univocal standard of desirability for a virtuous person deliberating about options that are not temptations to repudiate those commitments. When the temptations arise, of course, the virtuous goal remains a recognized standard for what's best, but the temptation establishes a horizon of desirability in which one's allegiance to the goal is, perhaps temporarily, put in question. The outcome of deliberation that reveals strict commensurability and the desirability of options is not always that one is better. It's possible that the options are equal in desirability. Here also the choice, the selection responsive to the outcome of the deliberation, is plausibly understood in terms of psychological determinism. In such cases, exhibited in the famous example of Buridan's ass, that is the hungry animal that trying to decide between two equally good and equally accessible bales of hay, the reasons for the options don't settle the choice. Given that getting on with action is good, uh, since the alternative to not eating either of them is for the animal to starve, some arbitrary procedure, such as flipping a coin or going for the option one thinks of next, or perhaps going for the one with which one is least uncomfortable, supposing that could function without being a desirability characteristic already considered, is responsive to the judgment of equal goodness. Continuing hesitation clearly isn't responsive. That's a failure to act. Continuing to seek a, a reason for selecting one or the other, that's not responsive. Uh, they, they're already judged intelligibly, intelligibly identical. It remains that using a non-rational tiebreaker alone is responsive to the judgment of equal value, equal desirability. Moreover, the rational use of some arbitrary basis for resolving the conflict and moving forward to action is not obviously incompatible with psychological determinism. If, if Buridan's ass had picked one of the bales, we would not suppose that, that uh, he did that by a free choice. Of course, there's another possible outcome uh, in the, of the effort to compare the desirability of options calling for a choice namely the judgment that they're incommensurable. There's no common measure for the desirabilities of the various options. No one of them is better than the others, and they are not equal in desirability. Here the selection responsive to the judgment is necessarily distinct from those that occur when the options are commensurable in desirability and judged either better or worse or equal in desirability. Choices responding to incommensurability, in, incommensurably desirable options are not consistent with psychological determinism because they aren't settled by the reasons for one of the options independently of the persons choosing to make those options operative. A selection between incommensurable options is not determined by the full comparative assessment of the goals underlying the desirability of the options, of the goods underlying the desirability of the options. So the selection is not determined by that judgment in the way choices responsive to judgments of greater or of equal good plausibly are. Nevertheless, there is an intelligible form of selection 
responsive to the judgment that, precisely, that the options are incommensurable in desirability, namely, the agents endorsing one of them, thus overcoming the block to action caused by the conflict of motivations. By choosing that one of the options prevail, that the goods it promises will be realized and set instead of those of the other option, one responds to the judgment that the options are incommensurable in desirability. This endorsing of one of the options is clearly distinct from the choice that responds to a judgment that one option is greater in desirability. This latter is plausibly determined by the judgment of the greater good. The former is not determined by the judgment to which it responds. Likewise, this endorsing of one of incommensurably desirable options is distinct from choosing among items identical in desirability. In the latter case, the use of non-rational factors is an unavoidable element in the choice. That use is plausibly determined. But in the former case, the choice is responding not to identical reasons, but to reasons that are irreducibly diverse. Endorsing one set of such competing reasons does not obviously require appeal to non-rational tiebreakers, as, as does the choice among equally good options. But my making the reasons supporting one of my options, the operative ones for me, that, just as that, makes no reference to rational tiebreaker, non-rational tiebreakers. For all that's involved in this response to the results of deliberation, just as what it is, non-rational tiebreakers are, are not included. In other words, the choice here is just one's creative authorship of a part of his or her life. The thought that a selection responding to deliberation must make use of such, such non-rational devices whenever there is a, no judgment of greater good assumes that there must be a sufficient psychological cause for the choice. That is, at best, an assumption not verified in the description of the response to the outcome of deliberation comprised by the judgment that uh, the options are incommensurable in desirability. If there is a determination of this selection, therefore, a, a, a causal determination is what I have in mind, not, not an endorsing that's not causally, has, without causal sufficient conditions, it must be by something other than the agent's response to the judgment of incommensurability. The selection would not, in that case, be a choice. In other words, if there is to be a selection among incommensurables that is fully that is responsive to that reality, the reality that that judgment is, uh, represents, then that response must be a free choice. The available reasons don't determine the selection, as they do directly when one option is better and less direct directly when the options are equally desirable. And if something else determines the selection, for example, a subconscious motivation that's not addressed in the deliberation, then it's not a choice. It's not a, re it's not a response to that deliberation. Uh, I, I've, I've caught a lot of fire for the argument I just made, and that's the reason I'm, I'm uh, elaborating it. And I'll, I'll skip some of what I've said and elaborate a bit. Again, in the case of equality of value, there's no value in one option that's not in the other. And so interest in the good implies that one be chosen. It matters not which, as Buridan's example suggests. 
as that example suggests, picking one of them is vitally important. Where the options are not equal but incommensurate in desirability, the goods involved promise quite different futures, not intelligibly identical futures. So it can make a great deal of difference if the agent chooses one or the other. Those incommensurable values continue, as it were, to have an appeal of their own. If the appeal of an option includes a justified moral demand, that imperative, that moral demand, motivates and makes unconditional demands, even though it does not overcome the desirability of the other options. The fact that choosing the morally worse option is choosing an option that is not worse desirability-wise, that doesn't imply that there are no rational considerations opposing it. In this section, this is the first part of my, my paper, trying to watch the clock so I don't impose on you too much. Uh, in this section, I try to clarify the idea of free choice and to make a case for the thinking that it's intrinsically connected to having options for choices that are incommensurable in desirability. In a word, if there are incommensurably good options and if human beings can select among them in response to deliberation, then there are free choices. Uh, those, who, those who deny free choice will likely be happy to reject incommensurables along with free choice, and perhaps those who uh, are keen on incommensurability, uh, if, if my argument's right, maybe bought more than they wanted to buy. Um, so that's the, sec the section. Esta uh, I think that establishing the, the connection that I've tried to establish here uh, doesn't by itself prove either that there are free choices or that there are incommensurables. That, that's a different question. In the second part of the paper, which, which is the shortest part of the paper, and I don't, it's about five or six, six pages of, my, of mine, and I don't really have time to read it out, uh, what, I, what I try to do there is to situate free choice, as I've defined it, in the context of the ongoing debate about the relationship between moral responsibility and free will. The key claim the key claim uh, that I'm making is that there is a form, a definition, a concept of moral responsibility that does imply free choice and therefore uh, a, a form of normativity that exists when moral norms, or we won't have to call them moral even, uh, direct uh, free choices. Now, since I haven't argued for that, and it is an important part of my paper, uh, I'll just treated as, as, as an assumption in what, in what follows. Uh, obviously, if, uh, if there is no coherent conception of moral responsibility that implies free choice, no norms that, uh, that are uh, appropriate in guiding free choices, then, then the rest of what I'm going to say is uh, not going to get off the ground. Now, I'll, I'll, now I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm more or less on time, about halfway through what I have to say. Uh, this is uh, this is part three. Uh, a couple of years ago, Germaine Grise provided provided a concise version of the argument that affirming the proposition that no one can make a free choice is self-refuting. Now that is on at the beginning of the the bit in the in the handout. 
that's, that's the statement of it. I thought it was important for you to have uh, at, at least something that you could point to as being what, what this argument is supposed to be about. Uh, rather than my reading it out to you, I will, I will, uh, I'll start to gloss it a little bit, okay? Um, this argument begins with the claim that if people experience themselves as making free choices, this experience is an instance of the first person knowledge that rational agents have of their own agency in their exercising it. Some people report an experience of this kind. I can do this or I can do that. It's up to me. And then I choose that. I chose that rather than this. And nothing, or I, I kind of more performatively, I choose that rather than this. And nothing causes me to do it. I do it. These aren't reports of one's awareness of objects distinct from oneself, but formulate one's self-awareness of one's agency in acting. Refle reflected, reflectively formulated after the fact, this awareness becomes an object uh, of, of objective knowledge, or can. Although Brzee doesn't note it, the experience he describes is distinct from our awareness of choosing in response to judgments of greater or equal good in the sense I've uh, specified above. In those cases, we're aware not of nothing settling the choice, but of our own choosing, uh, but our own choosing, uh, but of the conflicts being uh, Pardon me, I garbled that sentence. The, the, the experience that Grisey is talking about is not easily assimilated to, to the experience that we would have when we just saw that, that one thing was definitely better in the strict sense or two, the two things were equally valuable in the strict sense. Um, now, this experience, if humans can't make free choices, uh, must be an illusion or some kind of systematic mistake. How might one show that the experience of this kind is always misleading? What Hume maintained was a false sensation. One, one might adduce considerations of different kinds to show this. One kind of consideration would consist of showing that the experience of free choice contains internally contradictory elements or that its accurate description is inconsistent with logical truths. If its elements were plainly contradictory, or if its description contradicted undeniable necessary truths, then exper the experience of choosing freely would be incoherent or absurd, not just misleading. Another sort of consideration would consist, might, might consist in trying to show that the experience of choosing freely is literally a false sensation. Since an experience just is what it is, an experience can be false only when it's used to represent something beyond itself. Thus, a person experiences, his, experiences himself or herself as choosing freely and concludes that indeed the choice was freely made. Plainly, that inference is an infallible and might be falsified by relevant facts which the agent or another might bring to light. According to considerations of this kind, if any formulation of the sort of experience were immediately and inevitably falsified by, an empirically, by empirically available information, for example, if there were an element of every such experience or something associated with it that always went along with it that indicated that it was not a free choice, then there would be a very decisive warrant for, for thinking that the experience was illusory. But plausible considerations of either of these kind, kinds are not available 
for dismissing the experience uh, of, of, of freely choosing as a, as a systematic mistake. Descriptions of the experience of freely choosing are not obviously contradictory, nor are conceptual clarifications of its elements and the propositions these descriptions and analyses do contradict, for example, the principle of sufficient reason in its metaphysical or psychological versions, they're not obvious truths. Similarly, there's no fact, no piece of undeniable information that simply falsifies any possible, any possibly correct description of this experience. A person's judgment that he or she made a free choice on a given occasion can, of course, be called into question by the person's own further reflection or by conversation with someone else or by applying the conclusion of well-established social science research to the case. But those reversals of the judgment that one made a free choice don't justify a general skepticism about the truthfulness of the experiences on which such judgments are based. For, for that, a general reason why all such experiences must be mistaken, a reason sufficient in weight to overturn the reliability of any such experience would be required, and that can't be provided by the empirical reversals of individual judgments. What provides the general reason is one or more of the philosophical arguments for the conclusion that no one can make a free choice. Those arguments don't show, and for the most part don't pretend to show, that the, that the proposition is self-contradictory, logically inconsistent with known truth, or that the experience of freely choosing is obviously false. Instead, those who make these arguments maintain that free choice is inconsistent with the best scientific understanding of the universe and of the place of human beings within it, that free choice is not needed to account for valued aspects of human life, and that the reality of free choice would introduce chance events and unintelligible quirkiness into the heart of a person's creating their own lives. Without addressing the details and merits of these arguments, it's possible to say something about their general nature. They all affirm that free choice is causally impossible. The working of the world, including human decision-making, just doesn't allow for free choices. The grounds for that affirmation differ, but they're largely compatible, and so many of them could be combined into a kind of single grand master argument against the reality of free choice. That argument, in its best form, might be very persuasive, but it could not be, it could, but it could not be and is not decisive in the way it would be if it were able to demonstrate that the very idea of free choice was logically incoherent or that any experience of free choice were, was just an obviously false sensation. Now, proposing that no one can make a free choice on the basis of philosophical arguments of this kind that don't demonstrate falsity or incoherence, affirming that will be self-refuting if it invokes the sort of moral norm that implies free choice. For if such a norm is invoked, either it will have no application and force because there is nothing for the norm to direct, and then the performance of affirming it will be pointless, or if it does have application, uh, if it does, or it does have application, pardon me, I added a condition there, it, it, or it does have application, and then affirming it is falsified by the implications of the act of the proposition is falsified by the implication of the act of affirming it. This proposal appear, appears 
affirming no one can make a free choice, appears to invoke a norm. For implicit in affirming a proposition backed by arguments in a controversial context is the belief that one's justified in affirming it and that those addressed are justified if they accept it and not justified if they don't. Perhaps one might exhibit an argument for the causal impossibility of free choice without believing it, without affirming it. For example, one might consider a possible world in which free choices were causally impossible. And one might ask whether or not that world is actual. In these cases, there's no, there's no claim to justify belief. Since there are norms of various kinds, and only those that direct free choices cannot have normative force unless someone can respond to them by making a free choice, the argument must show, for this argument to work, it must show that the norm implicit in the affirmation of the, of the impossibility of free choice is one that can't be enforced unless, uh, if, if, there, if there is no human ability to make free choices. To do that, it's necessary to say something about the ethics of belief. One can't choose to believe what, what one can't help believing. Therefore, one, I think, cannot choose to believe that the contradictory of a self-contradiction is true as long as the contradiction remains kind of in one's mind's eye. Similarly, it seems that one can't choose to believe or not believe propositions that are immediately verified in one's experience. One just believes them. Just believing such propositions is being rational in the face of experience, even though the acceptance in, in believing them uh, may be completely naturalistic. Since it's not obvious what propositions are undeniably verified in experience, it may, become, it may be possible to stand back epistemologically from one's ascent. But seeing an event, it seems to me anyway, seeing event or remembering a recent event, you just believe the proposition describing it and reasonably so. There seems to be no choice in this matter anyway. So, so I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is uh, it, it can't be the case that we have choices to make about everything we believe, about every proposition uh, that we, we might believe. Some rationalists think that all beliefs are like these and therefore that we never need to make a choice to believe a proposition true and should never do so. But many of the propositions we believe and apparently responsibly believe are not the rejections of self-contradictions or the undeniable descriptions of the information delivered by sensory experience. For example, we believe or reasonably accept causal statements and statements in which just the disparate elements of experience are related within some sort of conceptual framework. It hardly seems possible or responsible simply to withdraw epistemically and remain skeptical about all possible knowledge except logical truths and reports of direct experience. Since we can't do that, believing must be subject to norms that are not compelling in the way rejecting inconsistency and accepting direct and immediate evidence are compelling. It's natural to think of these norms as being similar to the norms of formal logic, but less decisive. Uh, less decisive in that we can fail to follow them and still coherently believe in what they prescribe. So the, the kind of norms that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm talking about plausibly get their force from their, the requirements of pursuing the goal of believing and accepting propositions, namely knowing the truth and understanding it accurately. Believing is an activity that succeeds if it attains beliefs that are true. Many beliefs also succeed by contributing to an accurate understanding of the reality about which the beliefs are held. So believing and other similar cognitive acts and dispositions such as accepting are intrinsically connected to knowing the truth. And knowing the truth is a basic human good. 
Now, norms such as these, namely norms directing activities over which human, humans have some control, such as whether or not to believe certain propositions, and directing them in the light of human goods, they're most readily understood as moral norms directing the choices related to these goods. So norms like that for believing would, would comprise an ethics of belief. But believing seems to be in a different category than human actions governed by moral norms. We want to be led by the evidence to arrive at true beliefs. The result is that making a choice about what, what to believe seems inappropriate. Going where the evidence leads us seems to be the only appropriate way to achieve true beliefs. And so the only relevant choice is to prevent distractions from undercutting the effort to shape belief by evidence. Choice is for the sake of a good, real or apparent. Believing is for the sake of the true. This objection correctly notes that, uh, excuse me, I got distracted by looking at the clock. This objection correctly notes that the good of knowing the truth is not instantiated by choices, but by acts of believing. But if there are diverse and incommensurable aspects of the good of knowing the truth, there will be choices among options to believe one thing or another that are motivated by diverse aspects of this good and not by extraneous truth-undermining interests. Consequently, the objection fails by assuming that being led by evidence to arrive at true beliefs has only a single clear application in cases where one has reason to believe a proposition but also knowledge-related motivations to withhold the assent. Other substantive goods are similar rela similarly related to choice. These goods often require choices about how the goods are to be instantiated. Health is an example. One can be faced by a choice to preserve healthy living by aggressive intervention that guarantees lowering risks of mortality with considerable likelihood of morbidity, or to take a more pa passive approach to a disease that avoids, avoids risking greater morbidity but accepts higher risks of mortality. In these cases, the choosing is intrinsic, extrinsic to the good, but the choice is for the sake of health, and the instantiation uh, anticipated of the good in the person's uh, healthy living will be incommensurate in the two cases. Each way of living can be healthy in the way anticipated in choosing it, but the choice is required because of the complexity of the good, because the complexity of the good allows for con conflicting but health-based motivations for, for the, the choice. Similar choices arise, I think, in, in, in the other, basically what we call the substantive goods, uh, like excellence and performance. Choosing to believe would be problematic if it were true either that choices were necessarily arbitrary or that the grounds for choosing were independent of the good that believing instantiates and furthers, knowing the truth. As already indicated, neither condition obtains. Choices can be arbitrary, but if they're choices, they're based on reasons, even if sometimes bad reasons. And choices to believe are governed by the requirements of knowledge and by general moral norms. Choices to believe should be governed by, by general moral principles as applicable to believings, acts directed towards knowing the truth. Interests in other goods can distort the pursuit of, of the good of knowledge by providing reasons for choices to believe that are not related to this good. Therefore, when a person faces a choice about what to believe, moral principle re will reject the intrusion of concern for other goods 
into the reasons on which one might choose to believe or not to believe some proposition. This does not mean that, that the means of inquiry, or it's all things considered appropriateness in some circumstances, might not be morally wrong. Rather, it means we should not believe a proposition we have a choice about believing or not because the, that believing serves other goods independently of serving the good of knowing the truth in, the, in that act of believing. There remains, therefore, a, it seems like, what I should, uh, uh, that's not a conclusion. There remains a considerable area for choice within the domain of the good of knowing the truth. For like all the other goods, and specifically the other substantive goods, knowing the truth can be instantiated in different incommensurable ways. And these incommensurable instantiations of this good can emerge within options for choice to believe one proposition or another, even a contradictory one. One, one option may promise a belief more in accord with the web of, re of relevant scientific or historical belief, while the other may be based on a few facts which don't fit the theories uh, but, while anomalous, are well-founded. Here, it seems to me, evidentialism doesn't provide the criterion since in different ways uh, both, are, both fit the data, both are based on evidence. The truth-based reasons favoring a choice to believe some proposition rather than its contradictory may have the feel of an unconditional norm of morality. For example, the reasons grounding the desirability of a belief that fits well with other beliefs may seem to mandate unconditionally accepting the belief, that, that belief even when the choice to believe it's contradictory is supported by other truth-related reasons such as accounting fully for all the relevant data. Now, if you take what I've, these very, very fast uh, reflections on the ethics of belief and apply them to uh, uh, the, the, the debate about free will, uh, what, what do you get? Uh, um, those affirming this proposition, namely that no one can make a free choice, are invoking aspects of the prescriptivity of the good of knowing the truth as a normative justification for their accepting and urging others to accept this proposition. Perhaps the prescription is something like this. One ought to choose to believe propositions that fit well with other beliefs and reject those that don't. But there are other reasons, based on the good of knowing, for making the other choice. Perhaps the competing prescription might be one ought not to reject, without overwhelming evidence, belief in general propositions that are grounded in human experience. So the good is complex, and its elements are incommensurable. There are choices to make about what to believe in this matter, and the norms invoked to do that must function as unconditional norms directing those choices. Uh, even if they're not well, even if those norms are not that well established. So, those proposing that no one can make a free choice do appeal to a moral norm, and that affirmation is self-refuting. The fact that a philosophical position that must contend with an awkward experience, the false sens sensation of free choice, is self-refuting, surely provides some philosophical comfort for those like us who, uh, who rely uh, uh, on the truthfulness of, of our experience of our own agency. Uh, the us there was the natural law, law theorist. It does, it does that, it does that, the argument does that, even though the argument doesn't demonstrate that the affirmation that no, no one can make a free choice is false. It's either falsified by its affirmation or rendered pointless by its truth. This will certainly raise, raise objections, and I'll just try to formulate one. The, 
Those favoring a, a sort of consequentialist ethics of belief will no doubt object to my claim that there are incommensurabilities in the good of knowing the truth. Presumably, the argument would go somewhat as follows. Knowledge-wise, there is better and worse, and affirming that no one can make a free choice, that's the best choice to make because accepting a view that fits with the scientific worldview and both accommodates known psychological regularities and avoids mysterious uncaused causes just is the best way to realize the good of knowing the truth. This, this involves, this way of thinking uh, about, about the ethics of beliefs involves norms only in the way that other judgments of strict commensurability would. Some people who could come to the judgment don't, or some glitch prevents them from making the right choice. Using this kind of norm, those holding for, the free, for, for free choice are not addressed normatively. They're, they're, they're taken to be either simply obtuse in failing to see that the, uh, the, what is the greater good, or there's some glitch in their mental processes that prevents that perception from having effect. I think positions like this are difficult to sustain. To say to a philosophical opponent that he or she simply fails to see the truth of the key claim in one's argument, such as the comparative superiority knowledge-wise of the affirmation that no one can make a free choice, that seems to be announcing the end of the philosophical conversation and, and uh, uh, gets close to embracing dogmatism and uh, easily moves on instead to an account of how some philosophers get caught up in such foolish blindness. The opponent isn't expected to agree because he doesn't get it or she doesn't get it and appeals to his or her sense of what's reasonable or hopeless. So all that remains is to explain the obtuseness. Similarly, a glitch might explain why someone doesn't get selected in response to the outcome of deliberation, but hardly why generations of, of, uh, of proponents of a general philosophical view are unmoved by others' arguments. It would perhaps be more plausible to explain the failure of the defenders of free will to accept its falsity as a kind of epistemic weakness of will on their part. That might take account of the fact that defenders of free will do have reasons, but uh, for, for their opponents, very bad ones. Um, but if these reasons are strictly commensurable with the, with the better reasons favoring the choice to affirm no free choice, and if those reasons are strictly inadequate when compared to those favoring uh, no, uh, the, the no free choice position, then their desirability, knowledge-wise, will be removed. But those reasons retain their appeal for many who resist accepting that no one can make a free choice, even after considering the merits of the case for it. If this irreducible appeal remains, strict commensurability hasn't been achieved, at least not for them. And if it's not achieved, we seem driven back to treat the towards treating the affirmation that no one can make a free choice as a moral appeal to the, to the friends of free choice to accept what is most reasonable, or perhaps not as a proclamation directed at all to them who are taken to be either obtuse or not in proper working condition. Rizet's formula in the, in the, uh, towards the end of the little quote that's in the handout seems to me to get, to get what's going on here more uh, in a way that's closer to the data. Thus, determinists regularly try to show that their view offers the most reasonable account of all the relevant facts and therefore should be accepted. That should appeals to our reasonableness and challenges us to pursue truth disinterestedly. But since we can rise to that challenge or not, it prescribes one of two options really open to us 
They're open to us, however, only because we understand the good of knowing the truth and can choose for its sake or not. What I've tried to add to this is that the choice for the sake of knowing the truth occurs among options, all of which are based on the incommensurable, uh, incommensurable ways of participating in the good of knowing the truth, not by the improper interference of extraneous considerations. Thanks for your attention. I want to, uh, first of course, uh, express my appreciation to, uh, to the James Madison program for uh, uh, inviting me and uh, um, to Professor Finnis. Uh, and I should add, of course, that I'm uh, a long-time admirer of his uh, work and the project that he uh, shares um, with uh, Professor uh, uh, Grisey, Professor uh, Boyle, um, and the others uh, who've collaborated in their project of trying to um, recast uh, natural law theory in modernist terms, defending it uh, in engagement with the best recent philosophical um, analysis to, uh, uh, and to treat it as a project very much still in progress. Um, I've uh, distributed a, a handout. I'm sure there aren't enough for everybody. Um, uh, it, it's obviously a little uh, daunting, but don't worry. I don't really expect to uh, touch on really more than one section, so I'll just mention the other sections without going into them. The first one uh, on free choice, what I try to do is to suggest that uh, although there's plainly an Aristotelian um, thought or element behind um, Professor Boyle's um, uh, position, I was trying to sketch out uh, some additional claims beyond the the old tag that uh, we always want under the desire, uh, uh, we always desire under the uh, aspect of the good, some additional claims that, as far as I could see, Professor Boyle's argument utilizes, and just uh, invite him uh, to uh, discuss those um, more uh, more fully. Um, and uh, I'll return to section uh, two. In section uh, three, um, I take up. Um, uh, Professor Boyle's discussion of free choice as a moral principle. Uh, really, uh, all that I wanted to say there was to take this as, as an opportunity to say a bit about, to, to voice some misgivings about the language of uh, moral principles, of moral uh, rules, of uh, the moral law, um, and so on, to uh, um, uh, cast doubt on the uh, advisability, uh, or at least some of the problems, in going too far down that uh, road and instead suggest that what we take to be uh, moral principle talk or this that mode of uh, discussion should really be seen as talking about uh, uh, the virtues um, in various ways. So we shouldn't say, for example, that the moral law tells us not to lie or that the moral law um, is, uh, uh, according to the moral law, lying is forbidden, but rather say that lying is, say, dishonest or unjust and so on, and then go on to articulate what those virtues are and why those uh, features uh, have the kind of significance that they have for, uh, for morality. In part B of that section, I also then suggest that understanding virtues is in that way as central to morality will, of course, require us rethinking the way in which freedom uh, or free choice is central to morality. I, I make some suggestions as to where freedom fits with respect to the virtues, both on the input and the output uh, side. 
Um, and finally, in the, uh, in, in the fourth uh, section, all I, I, I meant to do was to uh, raise uh, questions about the uh, ethics of belief uh, uh, that, as Professor Boyle um, is uh, viewing it, uh, especially in the argument about the self-refutation of determinism. Um, as I understand it, his view of the ethics of belief is very much uh, cast still in the language of principles, uh, norms, which norms of action, treating um, uh, belief as an activity that is chosen and really therefore is something closely analogous to action, um, requires a, an affirmation of freedom. Um, my own suggestion is, though, that uh, perhaps we should rethink the ethics of belief and the norms, epistemic norms, rather differently. Again, um, uh, following uh, uh, Greco, uh, Sosa, Zagzewski, and some others, uh, to think of, of the ethics of belief more on the model, again, of the virtues. And if we do that, then depending on just which model of the virtues we're dealing with, we might have a diff very different view of the uh, uh, kind of argument or the affirmation that the determinist is putting forward. There, the question will be, um, whether in advancing such a claim the determinist is saying that if we fail to uh, um, go along with her, uh, fail to believe what she says, that somehow we're being epistemically non-virtuous, or that might mean simply that something has gone amiss, something isn't working properly in our belief-forming or belief-maintaining mechanisms, or in a rather different model, that somehow we're showing uh, that we haven't fully lived up to the kinds of commitments that an epistemically virtuous person uh, should uh, uh, should make. Um, what I want to talk about, however, is not that, uh, but rather uh, material um, in uh, more specifically on incommensurability. And again, I'll just try to gesture towards some of the points that are uh, that are relevant uh, relevant there. I won't try to say too much about just why it is that incommensurability is so central or, or so important in Professor Boyle's in, in Professor Boyle's uh, um, approach. Um, he defines incommensurability among options as holding just when, quote, there is no common measure for the desirability of the various options. Although this is a claim about options, these options, he goes on uh, to tell us, are selected according to their, quote, instantiating um, a good or contributing causally to creating or maintaining a valued, states of affair, a valued state of affairs. Now, there are various distinctions in the literature about um, uh, commensuration, uh, there's a sort of strong uh, or global commensuration as opposed to contextualized commensuration where a, uh, a metric for uh, comparison is simply invented in the context or is uh, utilized in the context without saying that it applies across all contexts. And similarly, there's a rather more complicated distinction made um, in one way by uh, Ruth Cheng and a different way by Walter Sinnott Armstrong uh, between comparison and, uh, and uh, commensuration. Um, uh, I won't go, in, go into the details about incrementability there. Rather, what I want to do is uh, uh, offer a sort of what I take to be a largely friendly um, uh, set of suggestions about incrementability, namely to suggest that some of what Professor Boyle wants uh, under the language of commensurability might be achieved um, in a somewhat different, uh, using a somewhat different model of uh, value theory. So at the bottom of page, um, uh, of my first page, uh, say C, well, uh, Roman numeral two, C1, um, uh, C, I, I suggest that incrementability might strike us, might, strong, might strike uh, some uh, reasonably as somewhat mysterious 
because there appears to be a presumption in favor of commensuration. And then under number one, I try to sketch that out. Suppose that item uh, number one is good, and moreover, suppose, as we normally assume, that goodness is a scalar or intensive uh, feature, such that when something is good, it is good to a certain extent or to a certain degree. So call the extent to which item one is good degree D1, and then say the same thing for item two. Item two is also good and therefore must be good to some degree D2. How can it be that it's not the case that D1, the level to which item one is good, is uh, neither greater than, nor less than, nor equal to um, D2, the extent to which or the degree to which item D2 is good? Right? That, I mean, that is a somewhat rhetorical question. We need some sort of explanation how there could be uh, this, uh, these facts without there being these additional facts of uh, some way of commensurating between the two, uh, the two levels. Now, as I understand it, the new natural lawyer's strategy, although he doesn't go into it in the paper that we have here, um, for answering that question is to invoke different dimensions of goodness, uh, suggest that uh, there are different dimensions of goodness, and so two things may be good, but good in different dimensions, thus uh, preventing us from commensurating them. Or again, that they may be good, but involve analogous instantiations of good uh, in such a way as, again, to block the commensuration. Um, let me just say that maybe that uh, can all be worked out, and maybe, in fact, it has all been worked out in adequate detail um, in works that I'm not, uh, that I'm not familiar with. Um, but at least on, at first blush, that approach seems to me problematic. We need to have a better account of just what we're talking about with respect to analogous um, instantiations and dimensions of, uh, um, of goodness. Um, so what I want to do, while recognizing that maybe that, as I said, that, that um, has been worked out more fully and certainly you know, allowing that it could be worked out, is to suggest uh, an alternative. Uh, the alternative will uh, draw on uh, work from uh, Peter Geach almost uh, um, half a century ago, Zeno Wendler a little more recently, and Judith Thompson just in the last uh, decade or, or two. Um, it also invokes uh, some uh, work of Noam Chomsky's, but uh, I shouldn't really say that this, is a, this involves any claims that Chomsky makes about goodness. Uh, and for that matter, even Wendler doesn't go on to draw the strong conclusion. But without going into the details of what they, of what they say, Geach talking about uh, logical grammar, Wendler talking about uh, really linguistic uh, syntax, um, and Thompson talking about both syntactical and uh, um, uh, logical and uh, both syntactical and uh, uh, ontological um, uh, features of our goodness uh, talk, they come to the conclusion that there is no such feature as goodness. That's explicit in uh, Geach and Thompson, and it certainly is implicit um, in uh, in Wendler. So, what is that? What follows from that? Well, consider a colleague's question whether this symphony, which is uh, which we call a good symphony, is better than that good pair of slippers. Um, this might be a place where one's inclined to talk in terms of uh, incrementables. But notice, our talk of the ones being a good symphony, uh, at least on this approach, certainly following uh, uh, Geach um, and uh, adapting some work of Wendler's, uh, means or should be understood as saying that listening to the symphony affords, say, a certain disinterested appreciation and certain intellectual rewards. For these to be good slippers is rather different. That's for wearing them to bring warmth and other time types of comfort to the feet. Now, if we look at things like that, then this seems to offer a simple impediment to what's called commensuration, 
For is, there is no, then, shared property among the things called good. Uh, so although there's a block to, incom to commensuration, it's not because we have an incommensurable goodness. It's not because we have two uh, goodnesses which are incommensurable. Rather, we don't have any goodness at all. We have the phrase, is a good symphony, which means is a symphony, uh, is a symphony such that listening to it um, does this. And we have the phrase, uh, good shoe, which means is a shoe such that wearing it does something quite different. But we don't have two goodnesses, so the question of whether they are commensurable or incommensurable in a way doesn't really um, arise. So there is a kind of block to commensuration, but that's because we introduced the block earlier on against the very feature um, of goodness. Now, maybe it's more complicated than that. Perhaps we can say that we could still commensurate even without a shared feature, even without uh, a shared goodness. Well, can, and can we commensurate without a shared feature? Consider this fact. My wife is smart, but on the other hand, to give me credit, I'm flabby. Can it be true that I am flabbier than she is smart? Right, so suppose that we are, suppose that we have uh, at, at the outset two different qualities, right? Uh, my wife has the quality of being smart. I have the quality of being flabby. Nevertheless, can we establish some sort of comparison between the two? Although we're talking about different qualities, can we nevertheless uh, allow um, a kind of comparison, indeed commensuration, such that um, I'm flabbier than she is smart, maybe three times flabbier than she is smart, if you really want to make it, uh, if you want to really want to deal with measures, as commensuration implies. Now, it seems to me it's hard to see what this means, and more important, perhaps, it's hard to see how it could matter. Can it be that the extent to which I exceed some norm of flabbiness is greater than the extent to which my wife exceeds some norm of mental acuity? It's really hard to know what to make of this. For example, what are the units of these measures, right? So I want to suggest in the first place, I just don't know what that would mean to say that um, um, I am uh, uh, flabbier than she is smart, or so too for any other features, X and Y, that we want to, or P1, P2, that you want to uh, a predicate of, uh, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the two of us. So notice the way around this would be to suggest, well, maybe you could give up shared features, but nevertheless have commensuration. I'm going to suggest that's hard to see just how that would work, what, would, what to make of the claim that there is still commensuration possible. And then, uh, moreover, uh, B under, I guess, whatever that is, Roman numeral 2, capital D, number 1, letter A, parentheses 1, parentheses B, um, in the middle of page, uh, of page two. Moreover, it seems to me that even if we could assign some kind of meaning to that claim, um, it's hard to see how it could bear on uh, such questions as, as the rationality of action. Um, would it make sense to say that we should choose the one who is the most outstanding and then say that I am outstanding in my flabbiness in, compar in comparison to her um, intelligence? It's just not clear to me that this makes a lot of sense. By the way, the example is uh, a somewhat frivolous one, but this is a very live, uh, live debate. My uh, recent uh, colleague uh, uh, at Rutgers, Ernie Lepore, has been arguing for a kind, uh, in general, against a kind of context sensitivity of a wide range of claims, including goodness, precisely on the grounds that, for example, um, we should allow uh, meaning to uh, such uh, comparisons of goodness. And he wants to argue from the meaningfulness of such comparisons against the, the sort of Geach 
Thompson-Vendler claim that, in fact, we have different qualities uh, there. So he wants to argue, therefore, that good is, in fact, univocal on the grounds uh, taking as a kind of premise that this sort of comparison makes sense. But what I want to do is to call into question uh, the claim that the comparison makes sense, uh, thereby uh, helping to secure the, uh, um, uh, the claim that there is no such uh, uh, quality as goodness. And, of course, if there is no such, quali- so, no such quality as goodness, then the question of commensuration of, of whether goodness, different goodnesses or different things goodness is commensurable or is incommensurable doesn't arise. Okay, so um, more quickly, uh, one should uh, turn then uh, to some more serious matters. Now, I recognize first the complication. Uh, um, Professor uh, Boyle and uh, with him, uh, as I understand it anyway, Professor uh, uh, Finnes, Professor Grise, um, Professor George uh, uh, Tollefson, and, and others uh, in the camp, Bradley, I'm not going to go through the whole list, okay? I'm sure there are some I don't know. <laughs> um, um, are not talking simply about uh, things being, having some general property of goodness. They don't want to commit themselves to that in their own uh, positive accounts and use of uh, the notion of good. They want to talk about what's good for human beings and what makes and contributes to a good human life. Um, and that's to their uh, and that's to their credit. However, Many of those whom they want to argue against don't so restrict themselves. They are still heirs, uh, as I understand it, to the position of Moore and, uh, and others, or the, the notorious Sidgwickian uh, formula of what's good or bad, uh, not just for this person or for that person, but rather uh, what is a good or bad situation or state of affairs from the point of view of the, uh, um, of the universe. Um, um, Let me just offer, uh, in bringing things to, uh, uh, to bring my discussion to to, uh, uh, to an end, um, a suggestion. Let's take literally um, a remark that uh, Professor Boyle uh, makes, perhaps not meaning it in the same way that I will take it, that the good, uh, treating the good as the desirable. Let's take that literally um, in a certain way, treating claims about good states of affairs as claims about their being good to desire, and then. Uh, take the claim that they are good to desire as claims that desiring them would be good. This is where the Chomsky element comes in. This is following from a, a famous example that Chomsky offered when he was first uh, devising uh, his theory of transformational generative uh, syntax. Um, uh, so, so we take then uh, the good as the desirable, take the desirable as what's good to desire, take the good to desire as that the desire for which is good, um, but then take the way in which certain desires are good, at least the relevant ways, as being uh, virtuous. That seems to be what's involved uh, for the sorts of, uh, seems to be the most plausible way to take uh, some of the claims uh, that are particularly of interest to the consequentialist. Claims about pleasure being good, knowledge being uh, good, welfare being good, um, and so on. It seems that what we're getting at there is that this is something that would be virtuous for someone to will uh, uh, wish for another person to uh, um, to have. I want to suggest that this has uh, uh, implications, especially if we then understand the virtues as virtues that make us good, not simply as human beings, as some people interpret Aristotle as thinking, but rather within certain kinds of human contexts, and especially in certain kinds of relationships. So uh, consider these two examples. 
The combination of Ashley's death and Beyonce's death is worse, that is, more undesirable, than is just Sierra's uh, death. Um, there's probably a division in the room right now between you know, those who know who those are and those who don't. Um, but our wanting Ashley to die, but now plug in the analysis. So this is the sort of thing that's said, and this is the sort of thing against which, as I understand it, Professor Boyle um, and his collaborators want to deploy an argument from incommensurability um, against the claim that two deaths, these two deaths would be worse than one, therefore we should act in such a way as to prevent the larger number of deaths, even if that means, say, killing one to save two. But let's see a problem right at the start. Our wanting Ashley to die and wanting Beyonce to die is no more vicious, that is no more vicious to anyone than is our wanting Sierra to die vicious to Sierra. It is true that in wanting the two to die, we are vicious to more people. However, this being vicious to more people doesn't seem to be the strict comparative of being vicious to someone, which remember was now the, uh, the, uh, the kind of goodness that's really being, or, or the way in which good is really being, what good is really being used to predicate as, uh, on this understanding of these claims. Um, rather, being more vicious to someone would be the strict comparative of, uh, of that feature. Exactly what I mean by strict comparative there, I must say I don't exactly know, but, but it's important for me to use it. Uh, <laughs> um, and it would need to be shown how and why this other non-strict kind of comparative um, is relevant uh, to, uh, to choice. And then finally, an, uh, uh, another example, letting uh, Ashley and uh, Beyonce die, it might be said, is worse than is killing just Sierra. Again, this is, a more ex this is bringing it closer to the issue of action, and this is the kind of case where, again, I think Professor Boyle and his new natural law collaborators want to deploy incrementability. I think there's another path to the, uh, to the result that they want. Uh, in intentionally killing uh, Ashley, we are being more vicious to someone, namely to Ashley, than we are being vicious to anyone in letting uh, each of the other two die. Now, why that's true gets into complicated uh, matters, but roughly because if you take the relevant kind of virtue here to be goodwill, willing good, then uh, the claim would be that willing the destruction of good, willing evil, is going to be further from uh, that standard of virtue than is merely failing to will the good. And so in that sense, um, in fact, uh, uh, it will be the killing one which is worse than is um, letting the two or the three or the basically uh, any finite number um, die. Now in this line of analysis, notice, I, I won't try to defend it, I'm just trying to sketch out, sketch it out a bit, and I hope that you get some idea anyway as to how it's supposed to, to work, right? So in this line of analysis, notice, we dispense with questions about whether the goodness of options remains or is removed after the processes of comparison, deliberation, and choice, uh, which is part of the language or, or of, uh, that Professor Boyle um, um, uses, which I find problematic. We dispense also with the strict, with the notion of a strict or overall or decisive superiority of states of affairs. Right? Superiority there means betterness, but if there's no such thing as simply being a good state of affairs, then there's no such thing as being a bad state of affairs. There can be a state of affairs that's good for this project, but bad for that one, and bad for this project, but good for uh, uh, this one. Well, good for this one, bad for that one, bad for that one, no, bad for this one, good for, uh, for this one, for that one. Um, right, so we can we can have those notions of being good for as opposed to merely being good, but that's notice is quite a different uh, um, 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 is quite a different 
business, right? So we don't we won't be dealing with any such strict or overall or decisive goodness. We can also dispense with the talk of commensurability or incommensurability of the comparative uh, goodness of the value of options. Rather, some comparisons never get off the ground, as in the example of the good symphony and the good shoes. Some have no practical uh, relevance, um, um, as at least in the talk of being uh, my being flabbier than she is smart. And others can be made, but the comparisons just go against the consequentialist maximizer once we have the right, or at least you know, a certain, which I would take to be in fact the right, uh, theory of value in place. So we're able to get what they want, blocking the, con the consequentialist maximization position without invoking uh, and without relying on this idea of uh, uh, commensurability. However, of course, uh, excuse me, of incommensurability. Doing that, I think, uh, if one wants to follow uh, Geach and, and uh, Thompson very far down that road, has implications because they both are, in fact, naturalistic reductionists. They want to say not only that there is no goodness, but that, in fact, any time that we are using good as an attributive uh, predicate in a, in a sentence, we can always substitute some naturalistic predicate. At least Geach says that explicitly. I think that Thompson holds something similar. Obviously, uh, those who uh, want to hold to a stricter is-ought gap can't uh, do that. Um, I'm not saying that anything I've said here requires that kind of naturalistic uh, um, reduction, but I do think that it makes it more appealing. Um, but then again, I don't find the is-ought gap uh, very appealing um, anyway. So, it would so if uh, the new natural lawyers uh, were interested in, in following this line, then it might be that there would be a certain uh, cost to some of their, uh, to some of their um, characteristic claims. They're not, I think, the ones that are most central uh, to what's appealing in their theory. At least that's what I wanted to suggest. I also wanted to thank the James Madison program and all the organizers of the event today and yesterday for putting this conference together and for inviting me to play some role in it. And I want to thank you for sticking around to this point uh, and Professor Boyle also for his very rich paper. I'll try to repay you by saying something useful and interesting. I may have to edit a little bit as I go along because of time constraints. Professor Boyle's presentation is divided into three parts and contains a very rich offering of reflections and arguments concerning the idea of free choice and its important presuppositions and implications. In my comments, I shall focus mainly on Boyle's claims in part two. That's the part he didn't read. But there will be some use to this because I will go on to show how my observations about part two are relevant to the argument that he makes in part three concerning the claimed self-refutation of determinism. In his part two on free choice as a principle of morality, Boyle explains why he remains unconvinced by Harry Frankfurt's rejection of the principle of alternative possibilities. Now, you didn't hear anything about Harry Frankfurt, but I think my commentary will be able to fill in the gap, um, the editing that Professor Boyle had to do. Um, Boyle explains his, op um, his rejection of Frankfurt's refutation of the principle of alternative possibilities or the principle that any agent is free and morally responsible for his actions only if alternative options were open to that agent. That is, only if the agent could have done otherwise or only if the agent were presented with alternative possibilities. Boyle's response to Frankfurt is important in this context because the account of free choice and moral responsibility 
that he has taken such pains to elaborate is an account that incorporates in its own way the principle of alternative possibilities, a principle that Frankfurt claims to have refuted by counterexample. Boyle's response to Frankfurt's claimed refutation of the principle of alternative possibilities involves the following important claim. Boyle writes, one can exercise agency and free choice among options that one believes even mistakenly to be open to one. Thus, for Boyle, choosing an option, even if there really is no possible alternative option, can nevertheless be in accord with the principle of alternative possibilities. What is required for Boyle is simply that the agent believe that the foreclosed option is available, even mistakenly believe that the foreclosed option is available. Now, I do not want to dispute the conclusion that Boyle ultimately draws here, for I agree with it so far as it goes. But I think that there may be a more compelling and effective means of arguing to that conclusion, and that means becomes available if one consults Thomas Aquinas on just why it is that human beings are free. For Aquinas, human beings are free and morally responsible agents just to the extent that human beings, unlike animals, are capable of acts of intelligence or understanding. Now, for Aquinas, the act of understanding a particular proposition in and of itself entails the understanding of that proposition's negation. That's because there is no expressible difference between the intelligible content of a particular proposition and the intelligible content of that proposition's negation. When I understand, when I understand the intelligible content of the proposition, General Motors is a for-profit corporation, I necessarily also understand the intelligible content of the proposition that it is not the case that General Motors is a for-profit corporation. There is no expressible difference in the intelligible content of what it is that I understand. The only difference between these two propositions has to do with what it, what it is not the case aims to express, which is not any intelligible content at all. For Aquinas, if one understands a particular proposition, then one also, by virtue of that act of understanding, understands its negation. And because of this, Aquinas holds, furthermore, that to understand a proposition is to be able to view the world as containing possibilities. And that means to be able to view the world as possibly being other than what it is, in fact, now. And because of this, Aquinas holds that with the ability to understand comes the ability to act as a free and responsible agent. This is because genuinely human action involves more than being affected by external stimuli or reacting and reacting accordingly. It involves the understanding, it involves understanding how things are and how they might be other than they are. That is, it involves understanding alternative possibilities. Stated a bit differently, the ability to understand for Aquinas involves the ability to apprehend a thing not only in its singular sensory presentation or not only as the thing presents itself to me here and now, it, the ability to understand for Aquinas involves the ability to apprehend a thing under a description and indeed under an indefinite number of descriptions. Thus, a mouse limited to sensory presentations can apprehend a piece of cheese only as the cheese presents itself in its singular sensory manifestation. And so the mouse will immediately fall to and eat the cheese if the mouse is feeling hunger and if the mouse is not distracted by any other perhaps more compelling sensory presentations caused by things in its environment. There's simply no free choice in the matter. But unlike the mouse, I can apprehend the same piece of cheese under many different descriptions, for example, as something that I myself am going to eat, or as part of a hosting gift that, for a dinner party that I'm about to attend, 
or as bait in a mousetrap that I wish to set in order to rid my house of that very same mouse that I just described. For Aquinas, it's this ability to apprehend the very same thing, for example, a piece of cheese, under different descriptions that is at the root of my human freedom. And I'm able to apprehend the very same thing under different descriptions precisely because my understanding of any proposition about a thing inevitably entails that I understand the negation of that proposition as an alternative possibility. And without such understanding, there would be no free choice and no moral responsibility. For Aquinas, then, there is an intrinsic connection between understanding and understanding alternative possibilities. And in turn, there's an intrinsic connection between understanding alternative possibilities and free moral agency. But given this Thomistic account of freedom and moral responsibility, it seems to me that there is available to Boyle or to anyone who would seek to defend the principle of alternative possibilities, there seems to be available the beginnings of what might be a more effective and compelling response to Frankfurt or anyone who would seek to refute the principle of alternative possibilities by counterexample. In suggesting this sort of response, I am in essential agreement with Boyle that the important issue here is not whether an alternative option really is or is not open to the agent such that the agent would be able to bring about some particular yet-to-be-realized state of affairs in the world if he or she chose that option. In other words, Boyle is right to hold against Frankfurt that the agent's actual inability to bring about a particular state of affairs in the world does not automatically undermine the principle of alternative possibilities. But I would suggest against Boyle himself that a defense of the principle of alternative possibilities does not even have to turn to the issue of whether the agent subjectively believes that he or she has the ability to choose the disallowed option and bring about the state of affairs that would ensue from that disallowed option. For on the account that I'm proposing here, the issue is not whether the disallowed option is or is not objectively open to the agent. And furthermore, the issue is not whether the agent subjectively believes that the disallowed option is open to him or her. The real issue is simply whether the agent endorses some state of affairs that he or she happens to understand. For in the very act of understanding a proposition about some state of affairs, the agent also understands the negation of that proposition about the state of affairs. And by virtue of this very act of understanding alternative possibilities, which is contained in the very act of understanding as such, the agent is free to take a moral stance with respect to the state of affairs thus understood. We might say that the agent is free to take a stance that would affirm or negate the state of affairs that he has thus understood, to endorse that state of affairs or not to endorse it, even if this mental act by the agent is not accompanied by the agent's ability to bring about any change in the state of affairs thus understood, and furthermore, even if the agent is fully aware of his inability to bring about any such change. The agent's very act of mental stance-taking, his resolve to endorse the state of affairs as it is, or to bring about change in the state of affairs if he only had the power to do so, is itself a choice for which the agent is morally responsible. It's for this reason that, according to Aquinas and the tradition to which he belongs, one can sin even by committing oneself mentally to a particular option that one knows is beyond one's power to actualize. In short, on Aquinas' account, at least as I read it, the availability of alternative possibilities, which one can mentally endorse or not, is built right into the very act of understanding. And one does not have to focus on the agent's actual ability to exercise objectively available options, or even on the agent's belief that he has the ability to exercise such options in order to respond to Frankfurt on the principle of alternative possibilities. 
Now to part three on the self-refutation of the determinists proposing the statement that no one can make a free choice, NFC. According to Boyle and his collaborators, the determinists' statement that NFC will be um, excuse me, the determinist statement that NFC will be self-refuting if it involves invoking the sort of moral norm that implies that there is such a thing as free choice. And Boyle goes on to argue that proposing the statement NFC does indeed invoke the very sort of norm that implies free choice and thus is self-refuting in the sense described. The heart of Boyle's argument, so far as I understand it, is laid out in the following uh, set of claims. And I'm quoting now. Those affirming the proposition NFC are invoking aspects of the prescriptivity of the good of knowing, the truth, as a normative justification for their accepting and urging others to accept this proposition. There are choices to make about what to believe in this matter, and the norms invoked to do that must function as unconditional norms directing those choices, even if their foundations do not permit them to so function. So those proposing that NFC do appeal to a moral norm, and that affirmation is self-refuting. Now, for reasons that I cannot elaborate in any detail here, I'm inclined to believe that Boyle's argument about the self-refutation of uh, determinism is bound to be question-begging in the long run. For the argument seems to begin with the very sort of premise that the determinist is likely to reject from the outset, namely that the determinist in proposing NFC is proposing a view that he and others actually have some choice in believing or not. But the determinist does not really have to regard himself as having any choice in the matter, and so he does not have to regard himself as invoking any moral norm at all in proposing NFC. In fact, he does not have to regard himself as invoking any moral norm whatsoever in doing whatever it is that he does. The determinist can hold, apparently without performative self-contradiction, that he simply does what he does and is not free in doing so but is compelled to do so by feelings and other psychological causes um, that he and others might uncritically and wrongly attribute to moral norms, but when properly understood are seen simply as the brute causes, uh, the, the results of brute causes acting upon him and his psychological state of being. Now what I want to hold is that an internal critique or the kind of putative self-refutation that Boyle seeks to eliminate here can be effective as such a critique or refutation only if the central premises that are operative in the critique are premises that one's interlocutor, the determinist, already accepts by virtue of presenting his position as a whole. Now, as I've just suggested, in proposing NFC, the determinist as such does not have to take himself to be invoking any moral norms. In fact, the determinist as such does not have to take himself to be a moral agent at all. By his own account, the determinists believing in determinism and his proposing that others do the same are matters that involve no free choice and no moral norms at all. The determinist is simply doing what he or she must do, and there's no moral norm whatsoever implied by the doing of that. He just does what he does, and this includes his attempts to cause others to believe what he believes, and he as a determinist cannot help doing so. In fact, the further argument that uh, making that sort of determinist of claim is dogmatist, uh, uh, has a, a dogmatic character to it, or a discussion terminating character to it, that wouldn't bother the determinist either, because the determinist feels that nature has in turn been dogmatic to him or to her, making him believe what he happens to believe. And so the, the charge of dogmatism 
would in turn not bother the determinist, as far as I can tell. Now, what I want to suggest here is that a perhaps better argument against determinism would focus not on the determinist's alleged invoking of moral norm, but rather on the determinist's claim that his own determinist account is something that he affirms as true about the world as a whole. The basic form of the argument could be expressed as follows. If my belief in determinism were simply the unavoidable belief that has arisen in me as a result of the way that things in the world, including all the states of affairs that comprise the world, such as my own mental and psychological makeup, have acted upon my mind or my thinking, then I would not really be justified in claiming that my belief in determinism is a true belief about the world as a whole or a belief about the way the world works as a whole. Strictly speaking, I would be justified only in claiming that I happen to hold a belief in determinism and my holding this belief is the result of the way in which the world, sorry, is the result of the way in which the particular restricted region of the world that I have happened to occupy has thus far exercised an influence on my thinking and caused me to think what I think. Stated differently, if the act of understanding and believing in a particular proposition about the world is simply the product of the way that one part or region of the world has brought about the effect in some other part or region of the world, this latter part of the world being the person's mind or thought processes, then the person who claims that his acts of understanding and believing are nothing but effects of this kind is not justified, justified in claiming to hold true beliefs about the way the world as a whole truly is in itself. At most, such a person is justified in claiming only that he happens to have this, the understandings and beliefs that he has because the world's influence upon his mind thus far, within his limited experience thus far, has caused him to have just these understandings and beliefs and no others. But if this is the case, then the person who believes in determinism cannot claim that his belief in determinism is a justified belief about the world as a whole, but can claim only that it's a belief that he has because that is what his limited experience up to this point in time has caused him to believe up to this point in time. Stated still differently, if the determinist's, act, determinist's acts of understanding and believing are just what the determinist says they are, namely the coerced and unavoidable effects of the way the world has thus far acted upon the determinist's own mind and caused certain beliefs in it, then the determinist has no principled way of ruling out the possibility that the world and all that comprises it, namely facts and factors entirely beyond the determinist's own understanding and control, might at some later point in his limited experience act upon his mind and his thinking so as to bring it about that his beliefs would no longer be deterministic beliefs, but their opposite. In other words, Given the determinist's own account of the beliefs that he has, the determinist can claim with justification only that he happens to have a belief in the truth of uh, determinism, given the way that the world has thus far acted upon him within his limited experience and has caused him to have the beliefs that he now has. But that is a very different thing from making the claim that his belief in determinism is a true belief about the way the world as a whole actually is notwithstanding the limited character of his experience thus far. Now, one might think that the same sort of problem, which is something akin to the problem, the human problem of induction, would affect the indeterminist's attempt to put forth his own indeterministic beliefs as true beliefs about the way the world is as a whole. But if we really, I'm sorry, but if we return to our earlier discussion of the Thomistic account of what it means to understand, 
we can apprehend an important difference at this, on this issue between the determinist and indeterminist who accepts a Thomistic account of understanding and believing. For on the Thomistic account, the determinist essentially characterizes acts of understanding and believing on the model of sensory apprehension. On the model of sensory apprehension, acts of understanding and believing are simply the singular effects of singular causes. There is no choice in the matter. There is no apprehension of alternative possibilities. But on the Thomistic account, the act, the act of understanding any proposition X includes and entails the understanding of the negation of the proposition X. And because the act of understanding involves this intrinsic duality, it follows that the act of understanding is altogether different from acts of sensory apprehension. An act of understanding, unlike an act of sensory apprehension, is not simply the result of the way the world acts upon the percipient being in a singular way. As we've seen already, the understanding to understand a thing is to apprehend that thing not only in its sensory singularity, but under, the different, but under different descriptions. And to understand a proposition about a thing is to, a, to be able to view the world as containing possibilities. And this means to be able to envision the world as a whole as being other than it is in fact now. We saw earlier that this Thomistic account of understanding lies at the heart of the Thomistic affirmation, affirmation of the real reality of free choice. Now, while this account, as I've briefly, quickly presented it here, does not itself <coughs> demonstrate the truth of the proposition that there is such a thing as free choice or that there are free choices, it does begin to show, I believe, why a Thomistic understanding of understanding can ground an indeterministic account of belief that, on the one hand, does not suffer from the sort of theoretical infirmities that a deterministic account does, and, on the other hand, does not appear to beg the question against the determinist, as Boyle's account apparently does. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I inflicted uh, 47 or 49 minutes of my best prepared thoughts uh, on you. I'm not going to inflict very many minutes of, uh, of an on-the-spot response to these very interesting and uh, rich comments on, on my, my paper. Uh, let me, I, I don't want to try to debate uh, with uh, Michael and, and Jorge. Let me just try to clarify a few things uh, with respect to uh, Jorge's comments. Uh, he suggests that we might be better off uh, if we embraced a virtues ethics approach to the whole the whole terrain that I was talking about, and that's an interesting suggestion. Uh, I doubt, I doubt that we would be willing to do that. We have theoretical uh, difficulties with making making uh, uh, virtue the basic normative category, and it seems to me that the issues about virtue ethics within kind of broadly, broadly traditional Thomistic uh, uh, theories, that's, that's one, of the big, one of the big debates, and we certainly have, especially Germain, I think, has engaged that very, very, very richly. Um, it, it would be a mistake to think that, I, uh, that, I'm, that I'm talking about the logic of comparison generally. Uh, I'm, I'm only talking about comparisons that arise in the context. This is the second. This is the second point. I'm, I'm talking about comparisons that arise in a certain context, namely a context where there's a conflict of motives, where one motive is sufficient to block the other, and vice versa. 
it seems to me that sometimes when we hesitate to act on the basis of, of conflicting desires and and we can rationalize that and make you know think articulate the reasons that are involved uh, it seems to me one of the things we do when that happens is we consider the options just in terms of what got them on the table in the first place just that I'm interested in that that's desirable that's interesting uh, how, however you want to put that and that happens to both of them and it seems to me a natural and elementary part of deliberating I'm not saying that that's all deliberation is but when you're in that kind of situation one way of icing it is if you find out that whatever made the one the one uh, desirable there's more of that in the other one you're going to go for that one now it seems to me it seems to me we we do undertake as part not the whole but as part of deliberation this comparison of options precisely in terms of what makes them desirable when we do that there's three possible outcomes either one's better than the other one's worse than the other uh, that's one option or um, or they're equal in desirability or they're incommensurable. You just can't, you can't, this has some, there's something about this that's interesting and I just can't, can't rank that against that. And what I was trying to do in, in the talk was to link up the idea of choosing among incommensurables uh, with a, a peculiar, a peculiar sense, not the kind of standard compatibilist, human style compatibilist sense of, uh, of freedom. Uh, now, it's, it's important that I did not try to defend the proposition that there's a lot of incommensurabilities. Uh, uh, my, my, the claim of the paper is incommensurabilities and freedom in that sense that I define, they go together and they rise and they fall together. Now, independently of, of that argument uh, about free will uh, uh, and and even the connection that I tried to, tried to make between free will and uh, and incommensurability um, independent of that it seems to me there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments out in the literature and uh, in the, in the Chang book that uh, that Jorge referred to in that Chang book there are two uh, powerful arguments uh, uh, against the presumption that well we just we just really can't get away with saying uh, that that everything you know everything's got to be uh, commensurable. John John Finnis and Joseph Braz uh, in those articles it seems to me make out the case pretty clearly. But certainly certainly to engage this debate about incommensurable values. Name, and not abstractly, the, the, the incommensurable values when you're facing options, both of which you're interested in. That is, uh, that is a debate that is ongoing, and to some degree, uh, uh, we have engaged it, John did, in, in that, his contribution to the Chang volume. But I did not try to engage that. That's all I was saying is these two are connected. If, you, if, if I'm right and you like, and you like incommensurables, you might be stuck with free will. And if you like free will, you might be stuck with incommensurable. If, if my argument's right, so I haven't really tried to engage that part, that part hard. And uh, 
obviously, obviously, if our general story about uh, incommensurability is gonna is gonna float, we've got we've got to, we've got to articulate that in in the way that John at least uh, John did in the, in, in the, that volume. Um, th those are I, I hope useful clarifications. With Michael with Michael's paper um, uh, comments, uh, I don't I. I don't think the arguments from uh, from you, you were referring to the, the, the one in uh, question 83, right? uh, the Thomistic arguments uh, on free will. I, I don't think I don't think they can be uh, worked out to, to be sound sound rebuttals to uh, Harry Frankfurt's important counterexample. Uh, if they work for Harry Frankfurt's example, they don't they don't. I don't think works so well for 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 further moves that are made in the spirit of Frankfurt, like things the, the kind of position that Bernard Curtin and uh, and uh, 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 John Fisher have taken, where where uh, where the emphasis is on reasons responsiveness, but there's no there's no alternative possibilities there. Um, uh, the, the story you're telling about Aquinas, I largely I largely agree with. And I used Aquinas. I used Aquinas in, in my pay footnote, not not as as proving anything, not as a proof, but as uh, but as an elaboration of what the concept of free will uh, means. I think I think the structure of Aquinas's argument, at least the argument in in Question 83, Article One, requires. Uh, that the structure of that argument is includes an essential premise that the reason why the choice is free is that the reason on which the choice depends, the reasoning is not demonstrative. It's not. It's not demonstrative reasoning that would settle it. It's dialectical or rhetorical reasoning. Now, why does the reasoning have to be rhetorical or dialectical? I think the answer to that is there's incommensurabilities there. What Thomas himself says is just what you said, that it's, uh, that it's, it's a matter of the fact that you can describe things under different aspects. The problem is you can describe things under different aspects. If, 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 if you can commensurate very effectively, why not just add up all the different the, the desirabilities of the different aspects? Um, so uh, I'm substituting incommensurability for Aquinas's the different descriptions. Uh, the, the, the final comment, uh, the final comment I would make is uh, the, the argument that we've made. We're, ver we're very conscious, and we were very conscious when we wrote this book, Jermaine uh, and Holy Ellison and I, uh, 30 years ago now. Uh, we're very, we were very conscious that the key problem is how to beg the question, how to avoid begging the question, or how to beg it and get away with it. Uh, uh, um, we don't say this. We, 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 it's never been a part of our view that a determinist makes a free choice, much less admits to making a free choice in, a, in asserting uh, that determinism is true. What we claim is that the determinist appeals to a norm, and the, the only plausible story about the kind of norm that's being appealed to is uh, is is the account of of uh, of that norm 
uh, as a norm that's moral in the sense that it implies that someone can make a free choice in responding to it. We never argue. Remember, we, we're, we're trying to vindicate the experience of, of, uh, of, of, of our agency. So those are the clarifications that I have to make. I'm really grateful for the attention both of you guys spent me for your listening to me so long. I went on longer than I should. No, that, that was fine. Sorry. Thank you. Um, questions? Professor Endicott. It seems to me what's wrong with the judge flipping the coin is that the coin flip, if, if the incommensurables include moral considerations, let's say, using, using a non-rational factor uh, to split something, uh, you know, the, the two options, one might be not worse than the other desirability-wise, but it doesn't follow that in every respect an immoral option is is uh, is not worse than the moral option. The moral option is clearly better from a moral point of view, and uh, presumably the judge wants to take judge the judge wants to take uh, something like a moral a moral point of view. The, the, the judge isn't interested just in the desirability the, uh, of the competing options, uh, and uh, but interested in measuring that by a standard that isn't just their sheer desirability. Uh, let me invite uh, 
Professor George, who in his indeterminacy freely chose to organize this conference. And uh, please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Well, I certainly want to say a special word of thanks to uh, all of our main presenters who put an enormous uh, amount of effort and attention into the papers that they have prepared. No slapdash jobs here, and I am really grateful uh, for that. Professor Raz, Professor Endicott, Professor Perry, Professor Kramer, Professor Boyle, and in a very, very special way, I want to say thanks to Professor Finnis. Uh, we'll see you all next year.